Last week we 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 saw the question of who Jesus was hanging out with and we recognized that Jesus did not come to coddle those who think they are righteous, nor did he come to pat them on the back and say, hey, way to go with your righteousness. He actually came to call those who know they are sinners. He didn't just come to hang out, sit, do nothing with, and just kind of relax and hang out. He came to call. And so we looked at what we would call, be called from and be called to. The reality is he was calling us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of, of his dear son. That's what God does through Christ. And so the invitation is there. Um, but this week we're looking at the Pharisees calling into question what Jesus does. What he's up to, what his disciples are doing. And it's just, a, I don't know, the Pharisees sometimes, they get... They get under your skin with some of their older brother feel like I'm pointing you out, I'm calling you out type stuff, and you just kind of get, ugh, but then you have to remember that we struggle with the very same thing, and so we don't get too judgmental of the Pharisees because we all have that leaning very easily. And so uh, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom's with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So here we have a classic case of the Pharisees. Hey, Jesus is doing new stuff over there, and we don't like it. And it begins to cause you to go, stop it. Just leave him alone, man. Find, your, find something else to worry about. But the reality is, Jesus was bringing something new, and there were people who wanted to question and bring into the light, oh, Jesus must be a terrible person, Jesus, you know, and I have to think that if, if it was anything like our um, election mudslinging, the, the, the Pharisees probably would have created hashtags for Jesus and what he was doing. Hashtag Jesus hates our history. Hashtag Jesus not really a Jew. Hashtag Jesus, you know, I mean, it would have been nonstop mudslinging to be, to be real because the Pharisees did not approve of what the disciples were up to, nor did they approve what Jesus was up to. Um, just a little info on fasting so that we're kind of on the same page when we talk about it because I don't know if we all understand what it is. In the Old Testament, there's actually only one day that the Lord commanded that Israel fast. It was on the Day of Atonement, and it was about confession of sin, repentance before the Lord, and you were to go without food. You were to not take anything in, and you were to deny yourself so that you would actually focus on the Lord. Only one day commanded out of an entire year. Now, there were other times that you might step into fasting, but the reality is when Jesus steps on the scene, the Pharisees have instituted two days a week that you can voluntarily fast. And what we see the Pharisees doing is using these voluntary days of fasting to become a badge of righteousness on their shoulders. And so when they looked at Jesus and what his disciples were doing, they actually thought Jesus wasn't very righteous because their disciples 
Jesus' disciples weren't doing the same thing that they were doing. And that's really what taking our eyes off of God causes us to do. We actually look at the activity of other people. Not only do we hate what they're not doing, we also hate that they're not doing what we think they should be doing. So it's a very strange, weird, twisted thing. And so when Miss Sue is saying, remember God, it really does help us stop with the finger pointing because we understand our own tendencies to do the very same thing. When we look at Jesus, we go, oh, that's why we need him. That's why we need him. That's why we need him. And so as we read these words that Jesus spoke, we have to be very careful not to assume that Jesus hated the idea of, of, of behaviors. We don't want to assume that Jesus hated fasting. We, we know that he actually loved it. But he hated people's motivations behind fasting, especially during this time when he understood the real meaning behind why we fasted. In Matthew chapter 6, listen to the words that Jesus says about fasting. He says, And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do. For they try to look miserable and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. Jesus is calling them out. Here we go. I tell you the truth. That is the only reward they will ever get. So somebody patting you on the back for looking miserable while you fast is the only reward you're going to get. I love that. That's very simple. If you want someone to pat you on your back, you got it because that's all you're getting. But when you fast, comb your hair. I love this. Comb your hair. Wash your face. You ain't got to look like a chimney sweep when you're walking around fasting. Okay? Then no one will notice that you are fasting. Uh Uh-oh. No one's going to notice you fasting. But isn't that the point? Like, we're supposed to look hyper-spiritual. If I put a little dirt on the side of my face, people will know that I'm religious. And Jesus is going, don't do that. See, when you do, then no one will notice that you are fasting except your Father. Is that enough? Is that enough of a reason for us to fast? That God alone would know our hearts? That God alone would know that we're walking through it? Is that enough for us? Jesus is saying it should be because who knows what you do in private and your Father who sees everything will reward you. Is it enough that God alone knows when we say we're setting things aside, we're denying ourselves? Is it enough? Sometimes I wonder in the American church if it is. I think sometimes we want the pat on the back more than we want God's reward. And ultimately what we see Jesus saying is the motivation for fasting summed up is you get God. Is that enough? Jesus says it is. That's the goal. I'm not looking for praise from people about how spiritual I am. I'm not even looking for God to honor my fast. I'm not fasting to twist God's arm to get something from him. God himself is the reward for fasting. I get him. I'm denying myself food and drink, and I'm going for a certain amount of time so that not that I can focus on what I'm not getting, but I'm focusing on who I am getting. That's him. Everything that we're talking about here is relationship. Jesus is saying, when you do fast, and he does. He says when. He doesn't say if. We should. We will. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the reason we fast is not to lose a little weight. The reason we fast is not to do a juice cleanse. The reason we fast is to get him. We don't focus on what we're giving up. We actually focus on who we are getting. 
Fasting in the Old Testament was connected to times of distress and grief. There would be a threat of war and they might fast. There would be a loved one who was sick and they would fast. They would fast when someone has died. They would fast when there was a, an oncoming danger or calamity or war. And so when Jesus says, hey, we don't fast when we're at a wedding and you're with the groom. It makes sense that Jesus would say that because fasting was associated to times of grief and mourning. And so Jesus says, there's a wedding. The bridegroom, he's hanging out and the guests, we're all together. It's a time of gladness, not sadness. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I have. I've, I've, I've shot weddings and I have officiated weddings and I don't really remember too many of them being dirges. I remember them being celebratory. Now, I do have to show you this video because there have been some that I'm like, oh, that's, that's cause for mourning. And so get ready for your ears to hear. hard. All right, did you hear? The, the, whoever was officiating was like, amen. No amen. No amen. Now that might have been caused to, to cry, and obviously there are plenty of moments that are on the internet right now, wedding fails, and there are moments that you're like, I can't believe I would totally cry at that wedding. But the reality is, most of the time, when there are wedding disasters, they become great stories, and you remember, and you talk about it. And oftentimes, the guests at weddings have more fun than the bride and the groom. I mean, that's the truth, Right? Uh, oftentimes the bride and the groom are busy taking care of and doing the formal thing and shaking hands and gifts and all that and talking to people, but the guests are celebrating. They're having a great time because everything's been provided for them and they've gone back for thirds and fourths and fifths and when it's an open bar, don't even get me started, right? I mean, that's when those weddings, everything gets started. And so the joy, the gladness that was being brought, Jesus was saying, I don't bring a funeral, I'm bringing the wedding feast, and you're invited to it. Now, obviously, the people of Israel had not experienced gladness, but sadness, and Jesus gives a hint as to why in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Jesus was saying that you might be experiencing a funeral now, but God has intended a wedding feast. I am the groom and you are the guests. The people of Israel had an understanding that marriage was a picture that God gave in the Old Testament to explain their relationship to him. 
in Isaiah chapter 54, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. And so we have a picture of God and Israel, the the bride and the groom, a relationship, a marriage relationship. And this is why in the Old Testament, when Israel would run to other gods or other things outside of their relationship with God, that God would call that adultery. Spiritual adultery was being committed because he is this marriage picture of a husband and a bride, the people of Israel and God. I mean, I don't have time to even talk about the pictures of his pursuit in Hosea, but if you have time this week, read the book of Hosea. Some of the most incredible pictures of the pursuit of God. A prophet of God told by God to marry a prostitute so that he could show his love and pursuit of us. It is a fascinating picture of this marriage relationship and our role in it and his as well. Christ was inviting people into a committed, loving relationship with God. And marriage is not just about feelings or simply because you say you love the person. Marriage is built upon the covenant promise that God made to his people. And so when we enter into those covenant promises, what we're hearing is not only, God, am I committed to you? More importantly, we're hearing Jesus saying, I am committed to keeping you. This is the picture that we see all through Scripture. And this is why the joyous celebration that Jesus was bringing, salvation has come, the wedding banquet, the feast that you are guests in. And in the New Testament, we see the church being the picture of the bride, Jesus being the groom. There is much to celebrate. And in the midst of life's hardships, sufferings, and trials, we continually celebrate this new relationship But Jesus is also predicting his being taken away, his crucifixion in this moment in Mark's gospel. He's saying, look, you're going to you're going to part. You're going to celebrate with me. But there will come a time when the groom is taken from you and then you will fast. There will be times of fasting. And so Jesus is predicting that he will be crucified in these moments. And Christ followers, we will engage in the occasional fast. Jesus takes the Pharisees even deeper into his mission when he starts talking about sowing and wine. And I love this imagery because it really helps the church understand that there are some things that we cannot combine and they don't work together. In fact, you can't have them both because if you do try and have them both, you lose everything. Jesus was bringing something new into the world. And he was bring, what he was bringing could not be combined with the old ways. And the Pharisees stuck in the old way idea of the Old Testament and all the laws and all the things. And this was what caused us to be righteous, this, that, and the other. And Jesus is saying, look, I cannot be combined with anything from the old. I'm not against the old. I don't hate the old, but I am the fulfillment of the old. And when you try and combine works with faith, Just try and say, okay, I've got this old way of works and I've got this old cloth, the new way of faith. You put this new fabric piece on, you patch it up. But what happens when you wash it is the new shrinks and it tears the old even more. And so you lose that garment. And it's the same with putting new wine in an old wineskin. When new wine ferments, these gases are released and expands and it stretches it to a point where the old wineskin will burst because it's already been stretched. You can't combine the two. And Jesus is saying, I'm bringing new. The law and its regulations pointed to our need for Jesus. 
Now, there are two ways to destroy something. And uh, I love that. I, I, I think that's a very interesting way to describe the acorn. Uh, my yard, my, my driveway, it becomes like a... Uh, like, you know how when Legos get dumped out all over the floor? My driveway is nothing but acorns in a, in a season during fall. And when you go out barefoot in the dark, it's just as painful stepping on those acorns. There are two ways to destroy an acorn. One is you crush it. The other way is that acorn is fulfilled. And how is an acorn fulfilled? It grows into an oak. And you can see the process on, on YouTube. You can watch it. It's a fascinating process. But the reality is, either way, that acorn is being destroyed. It's either crushed or it is fulfilled. And in Jesus' coming, he does not crush the law, but he fulfills the law. The law is ended, not because Jesus is saying, ah, get it out of here. He's saying, no, I have fulfilled the law. The law has served its purpose. It points us to our need for him. Jesus lived the law perfectly on our behalf, so he was qualified to die on the cross for us. He fulfilled the law. He did not hate the law or say, ah, you know what, fasting, forget it. Forget anything that's talked about in the Old Testament. No, I fulfilled the law. The law has served its purpose. It has come to its conclusion in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it. When we see these pictures in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is saying he brings something new. He continues in his conversations with them about the Sabbath. Jesus is not compatible with other world religions as well. I, may be, I know I may be stretching here because I understand in the, the context Jesus is saying, I don't work with the Old Testament ways. You can't combine law and faith. But I also believe that we live in a designer religion day where we try and patchwork things. We say, I'd like a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Jesus is not compatible with other religions. You cannot combine Jesus with the spiritual buffet of faiths and religions and ideas. He does not work. He tears all things when you try and combine him. In fact, you lose both when you do those things. I don't believe Jesus is compatible with any other religion because the way of faith, in Paul's words, is very different from the way of law and advice and ideas of good and bad and doing this and doing that to be righteous. Jesus alone is our righteousness. And in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23, he talks about the Sabbath, another reminder of who God is. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the Scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath is made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And again, to give you a little background on Sabbath, so we're on the same page. Sabbath was considered the time from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday evening. And the word that we get Sabbath from literally means to cease. Rest is implied, but the word from Sabbath, the word that we get from Sabbath is to cease, literally to cease from one's work, to stop working. This is why it makes sense when it says that on the seventh day, the Lord Sabbath, the Lord does not sleep, nor does he slumber, but he does cease from his work. And that is what he did 
on the seventh day. It was so important, us ceasing from our work, that it was actually, as Miss Sue read in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 8, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. And what's amazing about this is that just as children are like, why? 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 God answers those whys multiple times. He repeats himself in Deuteronomy chapter 5, but he gives the why. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with this strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath. In Ezekiel chapter 20, And I gave them my Sabbath days of rest as a sign between them and me. It was to remind them that I am the Lord who set them apart to be holy. So on these Sabbath rest days, we remember who God is, but we also remember who we are, who he's made us to be, what he set us out for, and that is to be holy. He has set us apart as his people. And in six days of the week, we forget that. We forget that we're his. We forget that he is God. Because we run after these other things, work and life and things and stuff. And the Lord's like, no, you need the Sabbath. You need to cease from your work so that you can look at me and remember me and what I've done. And specifically in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were to look and remember. And what happens when they forgot? They run to idols. They get caught in sin. And the Lord's saying, come back, come back, come back. It's the pattern of the Old Testament, and it's the pattern of our lives. Miss Sue says it, we're leaky, we are leaky. (laughs) We forget. So the Sabbath was given as a gift for us to remember Him. Because ultimately, that's where we come to life. The disciples were, in fact, in the eyes of the Pharisees, breaking one of the 39 things that people were forbidden from partaking in on the Sabbath. And it wasn't that they were popping grains of wheat off in somebody else's field. That was actually allowed. That was okay. (laughs) What they were getting mad about was the fact that they were popping these heads of wheat off, and in their hand they would be crushing that head of wheat to get rid of the non-edible part so that they could eat. And so the Pharisees were like, oh, they're harvesting, harvesting, they're harvesting. Just as annoying as that might have sounded, I think they might have been doing it that way. And this is what the Pharisees were freaking out about. Now, to be honest, now you, you, one of the 39 things that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath was to walk around aimlessly. <laughs> Did you know that? Okay, you were able to walk on a Sabbath if you were walking to a family member's house within a limited amount of distance, that was allowed. Now, the Pharisees just kind of wandering around chasing the disciples, but was that wrong? Not in their eyes. Okay, so the idea is that they themselves were also breaking the Sabbath, but they were harvesting, they were harvesting, they were harvesting. We were walking around. Oh, never mind. It's not that bad. Now, to be fair, the Pharisees would keep the law of Sabbath even to their death. If there was a threat or an enemy coming at them, they would actually refuse to fight and be slaughtered because they were so intent on keeping Sabbath. So you have to admire their consistency, 
But the reality is that stubbornness and hard-heartedness kept them from seeing what Jesus had truly come to do. And it's just with fasting, there is a danger in Sabbath keeping. And in Amos chapter 8, listen to how the Lord describes what people are really doing with Sabbath keeping. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. He's talking to his people here. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales and you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. There are few things that God hates more than those who observe the law in his name all the while desiring to destroy his people. See, if we're not careful, we keep the Sabbath with the intent to, I can't wait to be done with this so I can get back to my ways of life. And that is a very dangerous place to find yourself and in Sabbath keeping. The Pharisees had forgotten about the law of need and how it would override the ceremonial law. Jesus talks about it. He's like David and his men. They went in. They were hungry. There was a need that needed to be met. God didn't smoke them in that moment. They ate the food and the need was met. Mercy was shown. And the Pharisees had simply forgotten the law of need. And obviously the disciples may not have been starving at that moment, but they were hungry and the need was met. The Pharisees had forgotten why the Sabbath was given. Sabbath was given for our benefit and refreshment, not that people were made to keep the burdens of Sabbath. In Mark 2, 28, Mark continues with this, Jesus being more, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I am the one that has the right to overrule man's opinion about what Sabbath should be, and I will explain to you what it was meant to be, which Mark only confirms in Mark 3. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. There they go. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save a life or to destroy a life? But they wouldn't answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Now up to this point, the disciples' behavior was what was in question. And to be honest, when the disciples' behavior is in question, Jesus' teaching is in question. Because if the disciples don't understand a simple thing like Sabbath-keeping and fasting, then obviously their rabbi hasn't been teaching them effectively, and he hasn't said everything. So Jesus was actually being called into question even in his disciples' behavior. But right here, the Pharisees are going, Jesus, we're looking at you, man. We're watching you. And you healing What are you going to do? You going to heal somebody on Sabbath? And I love how Jesus does this because Jesus heals on every day of the week in Scripture, but there are six recorded healings on a Sabbath. And the amazing thing, a demon cast out on a Sabbath. There's a hand restored, which we just read about. There is a woman the Bible describes as folded over. Now, we don't necessarily know if it's a, if it's a stomach pain or if it's some kind of a, a spine thing, but for 18 years, this woman had been folded over. 
and she was healed on a Sabbath. He cured a person of dropsy, which is this physical swelling all over the body. He cures a person who was paralyzed for 38 years. He heals a man who was born blind, and he opens his eyes on a Sabbath. And these weren't seen as business as usual to the Pharisees. This was Jesus no longer caring about God's law. But the reality is Jesus was returning the Sabbath to what it was meant to do. And that is ultimately to point to the glory of God. God was being glorified by these people's healing. And in those people's lives, they were being pointed to the glory of God. And I love how Jesus just silences the Pharisees. They don't even have anything to say by the questions that he asks. Jesus asks, so should I do good or bad on a Sabbath? Should I, what should I do? Should I give life or should I take life on a Sabbath? There's another point where the the Pharisees are questioning Jesus on the Sabbath. Again, because they just don't get it. But Jesus is like, look, if your donkey falls in a hole on the Sabbath, you get that donkey. I'm sure he said it just like that. He's like, guys, you're missing the spirit behind the law and you're taking it and you're making it into this gross thing and he's shutting the Pharisees up just by asking them questions. And I love how they intend to start being the ones questioning and then Jesus turns it around and he's questioning them and they're like, hey, 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 Jesus, we're the ones asking the questions here. And Jesus is like, are you? There's a question. I love Jesus always. Like Jesus is always doing that to people and I love that. You know, but he silences them by his questions about is it good to do bad or good on a Sabbath, to give life or to take life. But to think about it, if the Sabbath was set aside to point to the glory of God, a day for remembering his goodness, then what could be more Sabbath worthy than Jesus healing and causing those who would now really rest to glorify God? Can you imagine the woman who would, was folded over for 18 years. Here comes a sundown Friday night. Everybody's getting comfortable and resting. How does one get re- comfortable and rest in this position? You don't. The uncomfortability in Friday down, sundown to Saturday sundown was just a reminder that you can't rest. You've had 18 years of no rest. And then you meet Jesus on that day of rest. And he instantly stands her up. You think that next Sabbath she's going to rest? Really rest. You tell a man with dropsy who's swelling all over, hey, it's Friday sundown, let's rest. What does that man say? I can't rest. I can't get comfortable. I can't sit. I can't do anything because all I'm thinking about is how I am in so much pain. And then comes Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, and Jesus instantly cures him. Do you think he will rest next Friday sundown to Saturday sundown? Do you think he will remember why Sabbath was given? To glorify God? To remind us of his power? To remind us of his strength? Absolutely. Why would Jesus heal on the Sabbath in front of men who would accuse him, plot to murder him, condemn him and his disciples? It was a flood of mercy that confronted every thought and superstition that the Pharisees had. As the band comes and we close this morning, why talk about fasting and Sabbath 
If, as Paul says, they represent the shadows and Jesus is himself the reality. You know, we don't have the commanded day to fast. We don't have the command that we have to practice Sabbath. In fact, Jesus, in in Paul's letters, says, look, don't let anyone condemn you for not participating in Sabbath or new moon ceremonies or holidays or traditional things. He says that. He says, don't let anyone condemn you for that because this new way of faith is much different than the way of law. Well, why talk about those things when they were upsetting to the Pharisees? And and Jesus, obviously, the way he talked about it made them angry. For the same reason that Jesus mentioned it. Jesus came to bring something new that he fulfilled. He didn't come as an add-on, something to add to a massive list of to-dos. Jesus brings the new, the new life. This new covenant that was sealed in his blood. In the American church, we've made it a debate about what should I do or not do when the question has always been about how might I honor God? That's the question. The question isn't, oh, what should I do or should I not be doing? The question is, God, how do I honor you? How do I honor you with my life? How do I say thank you with my, my whole being? How do I honor the command to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength? How do I honor that? How do I do that? Lord, show me how to do those things. That's the question. In America, we've tried to say, well, how do I just barely escape sin enough when the question should be, God, how do I honor you? And that's what Jesus points us to with fasting and Sabbath. What we see in both of these instances, the Pharisees had removed relationship with God. It was about X's and O's and T's, crossing T's and dotting I's. It was about checklists. And outer expressions becoming the most important. And Jesus is like, guys, you are dead inside. Jesus points us to the deeper meaning. A need for God to meet our need. Namely, in Jesus. Jesus meets us in fasting. When we fast and we go without, we're not focusing on what we're giving up. We're focusing on who we're gaining. We're focusing that Jesus is the one who meets our needs. Jesus himself met every need that we could possibly have. The gospel wraps us up. It covers us. Fasting doesn't cover us. Jesus does. The Sabbath, the time to rest, it's not about me being lazy. It's about me going, God, please fix my eyes on you. Sometimes we say we need Sabbath rest, and what we really mean is we just want to take a break from God. We want to take a break from everything. We just want to be lazy and sit around when the reality is, don't put that on Sabbath, okay? Have your day, do your vacation, but don't say it's my Sabbath. No, Sabbath is when we, our hearts, were gifted with this rest to cease from our work, to look at God and go, God, please give me the marching orders. What's next? Where do I go? What do I say? How should I say it? How might I honor you? This is the gift in fasting and Sabbath. Jesus doesn't ignore the spiritual disciplines. Jesus restores a God-centered, totally God-dependent picture. In both instances, whether it's fasting or Sabbath, we aren't fixed on what we've given up or what we're ceasing from. Our eyes are fixed on the one who meets all the needs that we have in Christ. So when I say spiritual disciplines are a joy, I really do mean that. 
Because God knows we need to be reminded. And so this morning as we continue and just worship, as we close out our time, I don't know what your thoughts are on fasting and Sabbath, and I don't know if you come from a more, well, anything about practice is legalism. I hope you understand that Jesus didn't say it was. It's for our benefit to deny ourselves food, to deny ourselves so that we might see Him more clearly, to to intentionally cease from our work, but we work. I mean, on those six days, you work. In America, we're trying to go, well, I'd rather not work but I still need rest. And the reality is, Jesus says, no, you work on those six days. You get it done, and then you'll understand what Sabbath rest really means. We don't really understand rest, because all we want is rest. But when you work, you understand, God, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta rest. I gotta cease, because I need you. That's what Jesus is pointing us to, our desperate need for him, which he ultimately meets in himself. Jesus is more. And that's what Mark communicates to us in the Gospels. So this morning, we will conclude as we do every week, inviting some of you, if you need, um, our elders and our gel leaders will be standing over here ready to pray for you. If you're at a place where you'd say, I need that, that's awesome. It's available. They want to pray. Uh, If you're still questioning this whole Jesus being the new, I don't get the new wine. I don't get the new patch. I'd love to have a conversation with you that may spill over into more coffee. I don't know. But the idea is, he's enough. Lord, thank you for loving us. And I ask that in these moments that, Jesus, you would cause us to see you as enough. Thank you that fasting and Sabbath were given so that we'd see you're enough. Don't let us hate the disciplines. Let us love them as you love them because you understand that when we see you, our needs are met. Thanks for being enough. It's in your name we pray. Amen.